The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. This morning, I'm excited as we continue in our series through the life of Abraham. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at chapter 21 today. If you're new, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, and we're going through a series on Abraham. We are just a few weeks away from concluding it as we run up into the Easter season, and I'm excited for for our message today as we get to to open this text together. Like many millennials, one of my favorite TV shows, because it probably has nostalgia back to my college years, is the show The Office that was on NBC. And some of you are rolling your eyes. Some of you are like, hey, I'm not a millennial, but I still like that show. That's okay. All people are invited. And if you hate the show, that's okay. Don't worry about it. You don't have to like the show to like the sermon today. It's okay. The show features one of the main characters is the boss in the office, and his name is Michael Scott. And there's a particular episode that came to mind this week. It's later on, I believe it's season six in the office, um, and the, the title of the episode is called Scott's Tots. Scott's hot. Some of you are groaning because you know the episode and you're like, oh no, this is like so cringeworthy. The story of this episode is that many years ago, Michael Scott, the boss, showed up to a third grade classroom and he promised these kids that if they finished high school, he would pay for their college education. The irony is if you know anything about the show, you know that this man has absolutely zero capabilities of doing that. He is horrible with his money, as he is in so many different other and hilarious ways. And the show is cringeworthy, this episode is, because you, here you have to see this man standing in front of this group of high school kids to whom he made a promise and basically have to tell them, there's no way I can do that. It was totally not true. And there's this line that he says later on in the episode when he's talking to the camera, and he says this, I have made some empty promises in my life. But hands down, that was the most generous. (laughs) The most generous empty promise that I've ever made in my life. We've all experienced broken promises, haven't we? Probably not to that extent, right? We probably didn't have someone who we thought was going to pay for our college and then told us they weren't. But we all have had people break promises to us. And we all have broken promises, haven't we, that we've made to others. We've been on both sides of the equation, One pastor said this, he said, broken promises are so common that we are often surprised when someone actually comes through. That we live in a world of broken promises, but our story today is we're going to be reminded of this truth that God always keeps his promises. That God always keeps his promises. There are no empty, there are no broken promises when it comes to God. And so Genesis chapter 21 starting at verse one, says this. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. 
And she said, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah that Sarah would nurse children, excuse me, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This phrase there, it starts out the Lord visited Sarah. This is an announcement of a miraculous intervention. The same phrase is used in the book of 1 Samuel when Hannah becomes pregnant with her son Samuel, that God visits upon Sarah and it makes sure that we get that just as he had promised to do just as he had promised. And if you've been walking with us, you know that when they were told that in their old age, both Abraham and Sarah, that they would have a child of their own, what did they do to God? They laughed back at him. And Isaac's name means laughter. But Sarah, upon naming Isaac and the joy of of holding her son in her arms, this joy that's now turned, she says, this is no longer this laughter of disbelief, but now people will laugh with joy over me. She's not saying I'll be like on the bad end of the jokes, but it will be, how amazing is this? They'll laugh at the awesomeness of this child in her arms. This morning, as we look at this passage, we're gonna see four characteristics of God's promises throughout Genesis chapter 21. And the first is this, the promises of God are perfect in their timing. The promises of God are perfect in their timing. Notice that it keeps pointing out both for the miraculous nature of this birth, but as well just to remind you of the journey that they've been on, how old Abraham is, that Sarah is also old. And it makes sure in verse two, that just as God had promised at the time when God had spoken to him, that that's when God showed up, that's when Isaac was born, exactly when God wanted, exactly within God's timing. See, God's promises are perfect, not just in their effect on our lives, but they are perfect even when he has them occur in our lives. That God is in control of all things, not just these promises that he makes, but even when we see the results, when we experience those promises in our lives and when we don't. A quote came to me this week. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you'll appreciate this of Gandalf. Remember this, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And I thought, isn't that so true of God? God is never late, but God's never early. God arrives exactly when he means to. But this is hard for us to experience because at least in my life, God's timeline and my timeline are very different things, right? God's timeline and my timeline often do not line up at all. Right? My timeline would be associated with a microwave. I want it in, I want to put a couple buttons and boom, I want it hot, ready and out. And God's like, let's stick this in the crock pot and let it sit for hours and hours and years. And we're like, no, 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 I want, I want it now. And God's like, well, okay, but you're not getting it now. You have to wait. How long? Yeah, you'll find out. How, how long? Well, you'll just have to find out. And so often we struggle with realizing that God's promises to us even include the waiting. All of the time that it takes, but God's promises are perfect in their timing to us. There is a purpose in God having us wait. So I was reflecting on my own life this week. I I was just reflecting on how I've experienced this. And how I've wanted God to come through right away in God's specific way and how exactly I want it. And God made me wait and how thankful I am to see God's faithfulness and his promises provided to me, but not in the timeline that I wanted, but on his timeline. 
I've, some of you know this, but not all of you do, that, that it was actually in the fall of 2018 when God began to stir in my heart and in Kristen's heart that maybe, maybe God has something new for us. I was a pastor at a church, a large church in the Midwest at the time. Maybe God has something new for us. And I'd been to that church for over a decade. I loved serving there, but God had started to stir in their hearts. The irony is this, I actually interned at that church when I was 19, got hired at 22. So I had never like applied for a job. My job interview was like a 15 minute conversation in the executive pastor's office. And I was like, okay, you're hired. Right, so I had never looked. I had made zero like outside connections. I didn't know what a job process looked like. And in my mind, it was like, okay, I'm feeling like I'm gonna apply for a new job. So what will this take? Three months, six months max, right? And I'm like, oh, of course, I'm God's gift to the world. I'm gonna apply to job. And everyone's like, oh no, we want you, we want you. And I applied and it was like, no thanks, no thanks. And I was like, wait, wait, what? And a year went by and I was like, what, what, what? And two years went by. And I was like, God, what do you, this is, this is hard. This is frustrating. I, I want you to give me what, I, like I'm asking, I want to serve you. I feel like you're calling. Answer me right now. Show me where you want me. And God's like, well, I know where I want you, but you gotta, you gotta wait. The amazing thing about the story is it was in January of 2021 where we had just gone through a series of long interviews with a couple different churches and we're told no right at the very end, both on our side and on their side, we just realized this isn't God's fit. And I remember having this conversation with Kristen, my wife, over the dinner table one night. And she's like, you know, maybe it's just best if for six months, we just kind of put a pause on all this, right? It's very stressful when your life is open and you're looking to move. Maybe we just pause and stay settled where we are for six months. And I said, okay. I just have one more church that I have to have a conversation with that's already scheduled. And if that one's a no, we'll take six months off. That one was Morgan Hill Bible Church. And it was this period of God made me wait and Kristen wait two and a half years. Because if I would have found something in 2018, this church wasn't looking for a pastor then. There was no need and God would have, and I would have gone somewhere that God didn't want me, but God had me wait and it was hard and it was frustrating and I didn't understand, but now I can look back and see, oh my gosh, look how God provided for me, even in the timing of all of it. And I share that because it's so rare in our lives, I feel like that we get to see the timing work out like that. And for some of you, you, you've received promises. You know these promises from God and you're in these periods of waiting, waiting for him. I just wanna encourage you this morning, trust not just in the promises of God, but trust in the timing of God as well. If God has you waiting, it's for a reason and it's for your good. So if you're waiting, continue to trust in God, not just in his promises, but to trust even in the timing. Abraham, when God made him this promise that you're gonna have a son, he probably wasn't like, and you mean in 25 years when I'm 100, right? He meant, okay, next year, in two years, but God made him wait and he looks back now and says, no, this was right in God's timing that this son was born to us. Verse eight, and the child, that is Isaac, grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. 
Whoever Sarah sa- whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. This weaning that would have occurred is most likely when the child, Isaac, was two to three years old. And we know from previous stories that when this first promise that in a year I'll come back and you'll be pregnant was when Ishmael was 13. So Ishmael was 14 at the time of birth. So Ishmael is now a 16 to 17 year old teenager. And it says here, again, a play on Isaac's name that at this great festival, this great feast when they celebrate Isaac, that Ishmael, it says in the ESV that he laughs in verse nine. Most translations translate that he mocked Isaac because it's a negative phrase of laughing. He's making fun. He's making light. He's insulting Isaac. Suddenly, mama bear and Sarah comes out real quick, right? Like you don't dare insult my little toddler. You don't dare do that, you jerk teenager. What's going on? The fool comes out. And so she says to Abraham that she need, he needs to go away. Notice if, if you remember the story before with Hagar and Ishmael, that tension that existed between Sarah and Hagar, it's still there. Notice what she calls Hagar. She never calls her her name, right? It's always that slave woman, that slave woman, that, that other kid's son, get her out, get her out. But she is speaking truth at the end of verse 10 that he will not be the heir with Isaac. God's already made that clear that The son through Isaac will be the full heir of what God has brought to them. And I, or excuse me, Abraham is distressed. He's displeased because this is also his son whom he loves and he's not sure what to do. But then God appears. God reminds him of the promise that he has made to Abraham and, excuse me, and to Ishmael. The Ishmael will be a great nation. He won't be the full heir like Isaac, but there are promises to Ishmael as well. And so Abraham responds and he sends them off on their way. The second characteristic of God's promises is that the promises of God give comfort in hardship. The promises of God comfort us in our hardship and difficulty and the circumstances that we find ourselves in. See, Abraham was caught, excuse me, Abraham was caught in this difficult place, right? Where, where he wanted to follow God, yet he also felt like, God is calling him to do something challenging that that he did actually need to separate and and send Hagar and Ishmael out, but that God reminded him in that moment when he was distressed and didn't know what to do, God reminded him of the promises that he had already told Abraham about Ishmael. This wasn't new. Abraham knew that God had said, I will make Ishmael a great nation, but he reminds him again in the midst of this challenging circumstance that he faces. And Abraham is comforted and can act in obedience because he's been reminded of the promises of God. What we need in times of difficulty is so often not a change of circumstances, but a reminder of the promises of God in our circumstances. It's not that our difficulty would disappear, but that the promises of God are still true on our lives, even if in the suffering and the hard times that we face. See, one of the most amazing things about following Jesus, about Christianity, is how it speaks to us in our pain and in our suffering. See, there's in our world, 
And this is especially true in the American church when you look across and especially if you search the top sermons on YouTube or you scroll through to see who's online and who's on TV on the mornings. It's especially popular these days to hear of, of a gospel that's more what we would call a prosperity gospel. And sometimes when you think of the word prosperity gospel, sometimes it can be really easy to spot. It's stay away from it, but it can be really easy to spot, right? If you ever see someone on the TV or on YouTube saying like, hey, if you send me a $100, I promise God will bless you and give you more money than you know what to do with. Don't send them $100. Send me $100 instead. I won't make that promise back. But like, like you're clear like that's ridiculous garbage. Like you're swindling people out of their money. Like sometimes like, okay, that's clearly not what the Bible teaches. I don't give someone money and I just get exponentially rich. That's not how it works. But sometimes there's a more subtle prosperity gospel that can creep in. And it's like, hey, if you follow Jesus, he'll just heal you of all your sickness. If you follow Jesus, you'll never have to face difficulty at work or at home. And all the problems in your marriage will just disappear because you've believed in Jesus. Now, can Jesus do that? Of course he can. He's God. He can miraculously change any circumstance. But does following Jesus mean we get an exemption from all of life's difficulties? Not at all. If you read through so much of the New Testament, it's not about how we get out of trials, but it's how to endure in the trials and sufferings and tribulations that we encounter. And Christianity doesn't pull us out of suffering, but it changes how we face it. In the face of hardship, we turn to God's promises, not to the things of this world, to seek comfort and to help us get through it. You know, being a pastor is an interesting thing because one of the things about, about the job is you get to walk with people through the highest of highs in life and the lowest of lows. If you think about it, I, we get to do weddings. Like weddings are like the funnest thing ever, right? Like I joke with people, I'm like, I have zero pressure at weddings because no one looks at me the whole time. They're, no one cares. It's like, just don't talk for too long and the wedding goes great, right? Weddings are great. It's the highest of highs. It's the greatest joy. But as pastors, we also get to do funerals. And we get to be there with people in their grief and their distress. You can see people the highest and at the lowest. Recently, I've had the experience of getting to walk alongside people who are experiencing healing and being declared cancer-free. And it's a high, it's a joy of that. And then I've also gotten the experience of walking through people as they're diagnosed with cancer. And they face an uncertain road ahead of them and they don't know what it will look like. And both sides, on the highs and the lows, and those who have journeyed through it to get there will tell you what you need in those is the promises of God to hold on to. That it comforts you in the hardships, the difficulties of life. So what promises of God do you need to hold on to this morning for you? For you, it's not what Abraham had, that you would be a great nation. God didn't make you that promise. That one was to Abraham. But what promises of God do you need to hold on to? That God is good all the time. That he will always be faithful to you that he is compassionate to you always, that you are loved no matter what, that God has a plan for your life. He has good works for you to carry out, that God will be faithful to complete the things that he has started in you. There's so much more, but in the midst of our challenges and trials that we can hold on and find comfort in the promises of God. And so Ishmael and Hagar are sent out. Verse 15 
When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. As she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And so we have here this desperate situation. It's sometimes easy to think here of this is like a baby, but remember Ishmael is a 16, 17 year old. But this situation, they're out in the desert. The water runs out. It's a desperate situation. So much so that Hagar is like, sit here, I'm gonna go over here, we're both gonna die. I can't bear it on my eyes to watch my own child die. We have this idea of a bow shot. It gives hint as to what Ishmael's future will be, that he will be an archer, one skilled with the bow. Yet there, both Ishmael and Hagar call out to God. What does God say? I have heard your cries. I have heard your cries. And God opens up her eyes and reveals the things that she could not see and saves them in the midst of their distress. The third characteristic of the promises of God is the promises of God point us to his presence. They point us to his presence. The God was there. God hears Ishmael. He hears Hagar. And that they should have known that because they knew these promises. They knew what God had said about Ishmael, that he would be a great nation. But they needed to be reminded in the moment of God's presence with them wherever they went. It's told in verse 20 that God was with the boy as he grew up. And in this story in verse 17, twice it mentions that God hears the voice of the boy. He heard the voice of the boy. Now there is an irony in here as well, just as if as the text in this chapter has played a lot on the name of Isaac, in this story it's playing on the name of Ishmael as well. See, when Ishmael was named in Genesis chapter 16, Hagar was told this, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael's name literally means God hears. God hears. And Ishmael cries out in the desert. And what does God say? I hear you. He's saying, just as you are named, so it still is true that I hear you, Ishmael, even where you find yourself. That God hears Ishmael, and because God hears Ishmael, they're reminded of his presence, and everything changes. See, the promises of God remind us of God's presence with us. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells you. That means that God doesn't live in a physical building. You don't show up to church because God's presence magically resides here on Sundays and leave and are absent from God's presence till you come back the next week. No, God goes with you every single place that you go. You are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that God is with you. But so often, so often don't we leave and we go about our daily lives and we don't sense, we don't see God's presence with us. 
We, we, we don't sense where God is working. We don't see him working in our day to day. That's why it's so important for us to be looking in our daily lives, not just at church on Sunday for where God shows up, but to be looking each and every day for where is God moving? Where is God acting? Where is God present? Not just in a building, not just when I gather with other believers to worship, but where is God present each and every day in my everyday life? Because God is there with you. It's amazing if you've ever noticed this, that when you start to look for something, how often you see it over and over again, something you never notice again, but once you start to look and you pay attention, suddenly you see it all over the place. I remember a few years ago before our daughter was born, when we got to go stroller shopping. Now I was a guy, so I'm like, okay, you go stroller shopping, there's two options. There's a two-wheel drive model and the four-wheel drive model, right? And you show up at the store and you're like, there are a lot of strollers around here. Fortunately, my wife was very much better researched than I was and came in and was like, all right, it's these two. We picked the one. I had paid zero attention to strollers in my entire life until I got to purchase a stroller. And that first year of having a kid, your stroller goes with you everywhere you go. You become best friends with that stroller. Guess what suddenly happened? I noticed all sorts of other people had the same stroller that I had. Now they must have saw what I had and they all went out and purchased it after I did, right? Now, what happened is that suddenly my eyes were open to something and I started to see it everywhere. See, when we don't see God's work and we don't see God's presence around, it's not that God has disappeared, it's just we're not looking for it. But when we start to look for how God can move in our day-to-day interactions with our coworkers and our families at school with you, you'll be surprised to see how often you'll start to see God showing up over and over again in the everyday routines of your life. Start looking for God and you'll be surprised as to how often you see his presence with you each and every day of your life. Maybe make it a practice this week to write down before you go to bed just one way you saw God in your life that day. If you're a parent, this is a great exercise to do with your kids. Where did you see God at school? Where did you see God at work in our family today? And help your kids see that God doesn't just live at church, but God is everywhere. The Holy Spirit indwells us and God goes with us. God's presence is with us each and every day. Verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set, apart, set seven ewe lambs on the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hands, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. 
This is the same Abimelech that if you're with us last week had the same, um, the same Abimelech from chapter 20 where they go and he lies and Abimelech acts more righteous. The same one comes and you can tell his skepticism with Abraham, right? Like I've had some bad dealings with you before. Is everything gonna be better now? We're, you know, six months, a year later, or several years later now. Isaac is, you know, two, three years old. And so, yes, it is, it is better. And they go in together and they make this treaty. There's a dispute over this well that Abraham had dug. And if we remember from the story immediately before, water is a big deal in the ancient world. And as Californians, we get water is a big deal, right? Praise God. Two-tenths of an inch of rain. We're like, yeah, send us more, right? Like water is a big deal in cultures like this. And so there's this dispute that comes and then a covenant is made between them. These animals that are brought by Abraham, just as we remember in Genesis chapter 15, if you were with us, when the God made a covenant and cut the animals in half and God walked through, what happens here is that Abraham and Abimelech would have cut these animals and they would have both walked through them together saying, both of us now are agreeing that we will take upon us this oath that this belongs to Abraham. He gives this extravagant gift of all these seven lambs to him as a reminder that this is mine and this is my generosity to you, Abraham saying to Abimelech oven. They name this well Beersheba, which is a play on both the word oath and seven, which are almost the exact same word that sound like the second half of Beersheba. And it becomes a prominent place in Israel's geography as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, the southern edge of the promised land. And then after this whole kind of treaty negotiation where Abraham has peace with the people around him, what does he do? He plants a tree. He plants a tree indicating that this is his home. This is where he says, you don't plant a tree and then leave. You plant a tree in your home where you have stayed. Abraham plants a tree and he stays and he worships God there. See, Abraham was promised back in Genesis chapter 12, three things by God. He was promised that you would become a great nation, that you would have offspring. And he waited 25 years, and then finally he saw the promise of this. He was promised that you would be blessed. And he's experienced that his whole life, that God has abundantly and richly blessed him in every way. And God almost also promised him lands, that you would have a place to be yours. And now Abraham, for the first time, has this place that is his that a treaty has been made. This is now his land. The tree has been planted. God is starting to provide the land for him as well. And so he worships God, calls him the everlasting God in response. The fourth characteristic of the promises of God is that the promises of God remind us of his character. The promises of God remind us of his character. Abraham has lived long enough to look back and see the fulfillment of some of the things that God has promised. And so he calls out on him the name of the everlasting God, the eternal God, the God who provides for him. See, for Abraham, when he realized and he saw the fulfillment of God's promises to him over years of walking through trials and difficulties, it experienced, it, it richened his knowledge of him. When we Experience the fulfillment of the promises of God. It grows us, reminds us of who God is. See, there's one way to, to know about God, and there's another thing to know God, right? There's one thing to have an intellectual knowledge from studying scripture to know who God is, and there's another thing to have this experiential lived knowledge of I know who God is because I've seen him in my life. And by Abraham calling on God as the everlasting God, it says, I, I don't just know about God, but I've grown to truly know him as well, right? Abraham would have called 25 years earlier. 
he would have said, yes, God is the everlasting God. But it's different now, 25 years later, now that he's journeyed through all that God has brought him through to look back and say, yes, after all I've come through now, I really get that God is the eternal God, that God is the God who provides for me. It's the difference between just knowing about God and having this experiential knowledge of God. So much of this only comes from lived experience of walking and journeying with God, not just for weeks or months, but for years and for decades. For those of us who are part of this church who, like me, are on the younger side of our lives, I would encourage you to find people in your life who have not just an intellectual knowledge of God, but who have experienced life with God and get to know them, hear from their stories, because they have things to teach us about God from their story, from their life that we don't have yet because we haven't been there. And those of you who are on the older, not, not old, older, more mature generation, we need you. You have a knowledge of God. You've seen God work in your life over years and decades that some of us haven't. And you are so valuable to this church because your stories of seeing God's faithfulness, of seeing God move in your life are powerful and rich and deep and life-giving to this church. So we need you and to hear your stories. So please be generous in sharing that wisdom with others. See, it's different, isn't it, to hear a 15-year-old say, God is a faithful God. And they could tell you stories. And that's certainly true. 15-year-olds can tell stories of God's faithfulness. A 35-year-old can get up here and tell you God is a faithful God, and I can tell you stories of his faithfulness. And a 75-year-old can get up and say, God is faithful. It's a little bit different, isn't it? Because the experience that they've had walking with God through all of life, they have a deeper sense of his character. They truly not just know about God, but they know God. They know that God is a God who keeps his promises. And Abraham saw that. He saw that God keeps his promises. And when it moves from just our heads, that God is a God who keeps his promises, when it moves into our hearts and we truly know it, that becomes a powerful thing in our lives. So may we be people who don't just know that God is a God who keeps his promises, but may we experience that as well. May we experience God's faithfulness and be quick to share that with others, that God is a God who's faithful to his promises. God, we thank you. We thank you that every promise that you have made to us in Jesus is yes. And those that have not yet come to fulfillment, we look forward and know that they will because you are a God who is faithful to your promises. You are faithful to your children. You are faithful to us. God, today, may we rest in your promises for anyone who's facing and in the midst of the battle, the midst of the hardship, may we find comfort in your promises. For those of us who are in seasons of waiting, like Abraham had to wait for so long, may we trust even in the timing of your promises in our lives. God, we thank you that you are a God who's faithful, who keeps your promises. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.